Welcome to the Frameworks and Finance Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. Each week we talk about frameworks and finance concepts for your life and work. Let's learn together today. So today I'm being joined by Josh Patrick of The Sustainable Business, where he helps business owners go through transitions and navigate those transitions uh, for businesses and helps them create a sustainable business. He's a certified financial planner and financial transitionist whose passion in life is to help private business owners create extraordinary value with their businesses and lives. He has previously blogged for the New York Times, and he likes to share his tips for preparing for the future in his books, The Sustainable Business and The Sell Ready Company. Josh, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation because this is, a, you know, a, frankly, uh, something that I'm you know, extremely interested in is working with um, CEOs and business owners. You see this too often. So I want to first dive in and ask, what do you mean when you talk about creating a sustainable business? Well, there's two sides to a business. One is economics and the other is personal. And a sustainable business, by definition, is a business that will last past you. But when you create a sustainable business, it doesn't mean you have to have the business last past you. It just means you created a business that is good enough that somebody else would want to buy at some point in the future. And that somebody else could be your children. It could be your managers. It could be a third-party sale. But somebody besides you would want to own the business because you created something that's worthwhile for someone else to own. Gotcha. So in your experience, are you dealing with business owners that are um, passing companies down to family members or they're selling their companies? What's What do you feel like is the most common outcome uh, for these businesses? Uh, typically, they want their business to work for them. Rarely does somebody come to me who really wants to sell their business. Typically, when someone says they want to sell their business, it's a mask for their business is not working very well, and they're not sure what they want to do to fix it. And if they can give it to somebody else as, as their problem, they'll be better off, and they want to get paid three tons of money for something that's not worth anything. So uh, we start there, and typically what happens we work with that owner to become what we call operationally free or operationally irrelevant from their business, which means they're not involved in the tactical day-to-day stuff, which often will relieve the burnout. And as a side result, the business starts working much better, making a lot more money. And the reason the business owner wanted to sell in the first place magically disappears and they have no interest in selling their business once they fix it. Yeah. Well, you know, by nature of it, business owners, they're starting their business because they're passionate about what they're doing. They had some interest in that. And so the question a lot of times comes to why did they lose their passion? Why do you think business owners are getting to that point uh, where they're struggling and wanting to sell or, or really just fighting the business? Why do you think are the most common reasons for that? Because the business isn't working for them. And there's, you know, that's a pretty broad statement. But there's a lot of places you can go for why a business isn't working for you. 
It might be it's not making enough money. It might be you feel like everybody in your business hates you. It might be um, the industry has changed so much that it's time for you to leave. Uh, it might be um, you're, you're doing stuff that you have become competent at, but you hate doing, and you don't know a way to get away from that. Uh, that's typically a delegation problem. So there's, you know, there's five or six or seven recurring themes that happen, but it's not the same for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. What, what made you interested in this, in this problem and helping, helping business owners solve this problem? Well, I've been trained in financial transitions and financial transitions are the same as every other transition in the world. Uh, I come from the private business world. I have been teaching people in the food service and vending industry for 20 years before I sold my business, actually 15 years. I was the chairperson of the Education and Training Committee for the National Vending Association, and we developed a bunch of three-day boot camp programs on people management, financial management, operational management. And as a result, I really enjoy helping other businesses you know, get the success that they want. And it's really pretty easy, or it's pretty simple. It's not pretty easy. Getting a business to be economically and personally sustainable is simple. But doing it takes a lot of work. And most business owners, or many business owners at the end of the day, don't want to do the work. So they even get started. Yeah. Well, what I've seen is just, you know, most business owners that I've dealt with, they just have experience in operating the business. And so uh, like doing the actual work of the business. So when it comes to the actual operations day in and day out, they really struggle to kind of create the systems and create the processes that are going to help them be successful um, in the in the long term. And so uh, that's why I was so intrigued by this is because um most people don't know where to start, don't know what to do. So based off of your experience and in, in working with business owners in this, what's the most important place to start when thinking about business sustainability? This is the place where I get into arguments with people all the time. Um, in my opinion, the most important place to start is values. And the reason is when you have well-articulated values, with clarifying statements what the, those values mean. Now everybody in your company knows what the company is about, what you're about, and broadly what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. It, the problem with companies that have not articulated their values that don't use them on a regular basis is that the owner of the business is often some place where they think they're going, but everyone else is making up what the business is about. So it's hard to get everyone going in the same direction. And yeah, having values by itself will probably not make you a whole lot more money, but it will give you direction, which allows you to put in the other things you need to do to make a lot more money. Yeah. Why do you think people push back on values? Because it's not, it's not tangible. It's sort of like saying, okay, if I help you develop values, what's the ROI on that? You know, what's the return on investment? And if I was to ask you that, you're probably not going to be able to give me an answer. You're going to say, well, I don't know. It's, it's valuable, but I can't put a number on it. And the problem comes in is that, you know, we have a program. We 
say, look, at, we can help you double your profits in one year. And we can do it. Uh, and it depends on the success path where you go. We don't usually start with values. We usually start with other stuff and we get to values because you can't get a really, really well-run company until it becomes values-led. Now, if you give me my druthers and you come with a blank slate, they'll say, I want to start. I want to create an economically and personally sustainable business. What do I need to do? I say, well, let's start with values. But most people don't come that way. They come with an itch they need to have scratched. And we better scratch that itch or we never get to work on the, the important stuff. So the order we do things in is not especially important to me. It's that we get what you're interested in doing first which will give you the biggest result for the least amount of effort. Yeah, so many businesses are reactive in the way that they approach things. And so when you're reactive, I get that. You're saying we have to deal with the reaction first. And then once we've shown that we can help you solve a problem, we can now go on to the bigger issues of of values. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, first you have to, if if I haven't solved your immediate problem or helped you solve your immediate problem, you don't have the bandwidth to listen to the stuff that is really important. You know, for example, I think dashboards, financial dashboards are absolutely crucial for a business to be successful. Without it, you just can't do it because you don't know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. You have no predictive numbers. You have nothing that is helping you figure out what's going to happen in the future in your business. Rarely can I start there. It's a really important thing, but it's a big leap for people to start sharing some of that information and even having the methodology to put the information together. You know, we will typically start with get some easy things that are for you to win, and then we'll get around to doing that. Some people are ready to start with the dashboard. That's the first thing we do. Some people we need to be starting with just, you know, very simple systems. You know, for example, uh, I'm working with an engineering company right now, and we, you know, they were doing everything through email, which is incredibly inefficient when you're trying to manage a project. So we put in a program called ClickUp, which is a project management, task management program. And now the work has become visible. You know, it's one of Deming's 14 points, make work visible. And when you make the work visible, it's easier to track what's going on. And you don't have to try to remember, oh, gee, I didn't do this and you do that. It's sitting right there on a dashboard. So, you know, everyone sees what they need. Everybody has due dates. There's a review process that's built in. When we get a new project in, we're building templates now for the different types of projects. So they just go say copy template and all the people are assigned to where they need to be assigned and all the tasks are there. And now we're ready to go. Dashboards are extremely powerful. That's one of the things that we talk about in the cohort that I do. We specifically focus on financial dashboards, but it sounds like you're also talking about other types of dashboards. Um, what, what ex, you know, what would you say as you reflect kind of on the dashboards that you create? Do you have kind of categories that you put those into, or different types of dashboards for different types of people in the company? Different types of stuff. I mean, I'm a big fan of a methodology called Scrum. And it happens to be Scrum is a really good strategy to work with construction companies, specifically home builders. If you're controlling the whole deal where you're a general contractor and you're not using Scrum to do your projects, boy, are you missing the boat. 
because by using Scrum on a general contractor, we can take at least 20%, if not 40%, out of the labor cost. Now, just think about that for a second. If I reduce your labor cost by 20%, what does that in your typical, let's say you're a typical contractor, you're doing a million dollars a year. In a million dollars a year, and let's say you're making $100,000. So I'm making 10% on my business. And if I take 20% on my labor cost, and my labor cost is 25%, that's $250,000. I'm taking 50,000 bucks out. I've just increased my profit margin by 50% by just using a planning strategy. And 20% is a low side. Where does the 20% come from? Is that just from efficiencies in the process or? What do most contractors do? They get a job, they order material, they show up, then they try to figure out what they're going to do to, to get the job done on the site. So people will spend a lot of time hanging around, a lot of time waiting. They're not sure what they're supposed to be doing. We don't even have an order of what's supposed to be done, and they just kind of do stuff. They eventually get it done, but they do stuff. What if instead we plan that for the next two weeks, here's all the stuff we're going to get done, here's the difficulty of it, and at the end of that period, we look back at what we did in what's called a retrospective. We say, what worked? What didn't work? What can we do better? And we do that over and over and over again. And the iterations of, of making small improvements every two weeks over the course of a year, if I improve 5%, or let's just say I improve 2% every two weeks over a year, I've improved 52% over the course of a year. And that's not even the compounding factor of adding 2% on top of 2% on top of 2%. Because the truth is, 52% actually will make my, um, will, will give me a 200% improvement by using the rule of 72, which is whatever you're measuring divided by 72 as a percent, that tells you how long it takes to double. So I have a 2% improvement over 36 periods. I have doubled what I'm doing. Those 2% changes are not easy to see a lot of times. And so, so people question, how useful is that? Well, I, that's why your dashboard always should have 13 weeks in it. So you're looking at trends. You know, we do a financial dashboard, and our financial dashboard is generally predictive numbers. They're going to tell you what's going to happen in your business over the next 90 days. You know, things like how many calls are your salespeople making a week? What's the dollar volume of proposals they're making a week? How many enrolled numbers do they close a week? How much in dollar numbers do we close a week? What's our backlog? In other words, how much business do we have in the books that we haven't done yet? Is that backlog going up? Is it going down? What's happening to our accounts receivable? What's happening to our cash? Um, how productive is each team that we have in our company? And we recommend using teams of four or five people. So you take all those things together and you start measuring it and you put it there and make it visible. Now you're making work visible again. And then all those numbers will automatically get better if you just post them. You don't have to do anything else. Just post them and they get better. And, you know, one of my stupid, I have a lot of stupid sayings. And one of them is that which gets measured gets done. So when you're making work visible, you're going to get it to be better automatically without doing anything. 
And then if we add some stuff on top of it that we actually do mindfully, then the results become really ridiculous. What you're talking about there is you're talking about the lead versus lag measure, right? And that's extremely important in business because most people spend the majority of their time creating or looking at lag measures. They're looking at things that happened in the past. And that's honestly what most of financial, a lot of financial metrics are. Sounds like you're leaning pretty heavily on focusing on those lead metrics. What do you feel like is the right balance between looking at lead versus lag? Well, it depends on, you know, you think you look at your lagging measurements, essentially. I mean, your profit and loss statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. You look at that once a month. And it doesn't really tell you anything about how to make your business better. It just tells you what your business did as far as performance goes. So the lagging measurements are sort of your report card. Your leading measurements are your, those are your action steps you need to be taking to make sure, and you want to have those improvements. So in other words, if I'm using Scrum and I'm looking at productivity of my teams, I should see that productivity slowly but surely go up. Now, there'll be some weeks I go up, some weeks I go back, some weeks I go up, some weeks I go back. But over a 13-week period, I better be seeing that line go up to the right, which means I'm getting better. So by looking at 13 weeks, I get a better chance of what that 2% a week means or 2% a period means. Um, now, the other thing about, and this is really interesting about Scrum, which I really like, and I missed it the first time I read the book. Uh, Scrum Make by Jeff Sutherland. And in there, he says, you know, at the end of my retrospective, I have three questions I ask my the Scrum members, the team members. I ask them, one, what did you love about the work you did over the last sprint, which is a two or three week period? Next question, what did you hate about the work you did over the last two or three weeks, over the last sprint? And the third question is, what would have to change for what you didn't like to become stuff that you love to do. Now, when you do that, what are you doing? You're looking back. Well, not only you're looking back, but you're turning your org chart upside down. Mm. Instead of me telling you what you need to do to do better, you're telling me what you need to do better. Because after all, who's the expert at the job they're doing? Yeah, they are for sure. Right. So instead of telling, maybe we should start listening a little bit more. That's, that's really good. And I think it takes into account two things because most people aren't stopping to look back. Most people aren't doing that reflection. So forcing that reflection is really powerful. But then I, I really like the concept of turning that org chart upside down. Um, that's, that's, really, that's really powerful. So when you, when you go about developing, I want to go back to dashboards a little bit. And, and when you go about developing those lead measures, how do you go about picking out what lead measures are the most predictive or helpful for a company? Well, it really depends on your industry. You know, for example, um, in the food service business, I would be measuring stuff. And well, I used to be in the vending business. We would, we would measure, you know, dollars per stop by type of machine, for example, a glass front snack machine. How many dollars per stop? Every time the route driver went to that machine, how much merchandise do they put into it and how much cash do they pull out? That's a measurement. Obviously, you're not going to use that in a construction company. 
We would also measure repeat service calls. How many times did it, if a service call came in for a particular machine, how what was the percent of time that we had to have a mechanic go back for a second call within a week? We would measure that. In our food production facility, we would measure productivity. What was our labor cost or what was our cost per unit to produce a machine? I mean, produce a sandwich. So it really depends on your industry. Uh, in the construction business, it's really pretty simple. It's only seven or eight things we're measuring. And, you know, the things we measure in, in the construction business, so what is your productivity per your teams? What's the amount of cash you have on hand? What's the accounts receivable you have over 45 days? Um, I would actually make it 15 days, but I can't get any company to do that. <laughs> um, what is the backlog you have for business? And how many sales calls are you um, making a week? What's the dollar value? What's the closing ratio, it, both in number and in dollars? And that's basically what you're measuring. And you want all those things to be at a certain level. Now, if I find that my backlog is going up and my uh, sales numbers are also going up and it's pretty consistent, and I see my backlog go from, say, six weeks to 15 weeks, or you know, I, would, I would go six weeks to eight or nine weeks, I'd be saying to myself, is this a trend that's going to continue? And if it is, do I need to put another team on it? Because my goal is to get that backlog down to where I can service within 30 to 45 days. If my backlog is up at 90 days, I know I'm going to have some customers that are a little bit unhappy. So part of this is what's my sales process? What's my marketing process? Marketing to create awareness. Sales creates customers. You know, for example, in the vending business, I really don't care about public Google reviews because that's not going to make or break if I get an account. But if I'm in the construction world, the number one marketing thing I can do is to go out and push Google reviews. Why? When someone wants to hire a contractor, where do they go? Well, the first thing to do is to talk to their friends to see who have you used and who worked well for you. So that's introductions, which is always the best way. But if people say, I don't know, you know, I've just not done that for a while, where are you going next? Google. How does Google rank unpaid or free listings based on Google reviews? So yeah, is this a marketing thing that a marketing company would tell you to do? Probably not because there's not much they can get paid for with doing it. But if you sit there and your marketing effort is only Google reviews, that's going to be the most effective thing you can probably do because you get to the top of Google. You need to have a website where it's easy for someone to say, I'm interested, put their hand up. And if you do that, you're making it pretty easy. Now, once someone puts their hand up, now you go into a sales pipeline. You have a funnel that brings people into your, into your world. And the pipeline is, what are the things you need to do to be successful in selling a customer? You know, I have a, just, we just put solar on our house. And the solar company did this about as well as any construction company I have ever seen in my life. And they were just, we felt honored and taken care of from the first contact we had with them all the way through the installation into the follow-up after they did the job. So when you do that, now you've got a system that's going to create customers more reliably and more important, I'm a raving fan of this company. You know, people don't make 
introductions unless you make them into a raving fan. So how do you make them into a raving fan? It's easy to do. Use a system. Well, and and those dashboards help you with those systems. And the and like you said, the project management tools like ClickUp help you with those systems. Uh, one of the things I heard you kind of talk about with the dashboards is you talked about um, you have elements that you have direct control over, meaning calls you're making or actions that you're taking or hours that are being worked. Those are things that you have direct control over. But you also have the things that uh, like, like the backlog that you don't have an immediate direct control over, right? Because you can control the calls you make or you can control the other elements of proposals submitted, but you can't control how much gets into that backlog. Well, the backlog again is a result. Right. You know, you, you can, you can, I would actually say, yes, you can control the backlog. You can become better at selling, which will increase your backlog, and you can be better at installing which will decrease your backlog. So you want to be doing you want to be doing both. I mean the backlog you want to have at a level that will keep your people busy for at least 30 days. You want at least 30 days in your backlog, probably 45 days. If you get much over 45 days, you should be thinking about how can I make my teams more productive? And that's where we use Scrum. So let's say I have three teams and I make all of them 20% more productive. That means I can grow my business by 20% without adding one person. If I make myself 40% more productive, which is what you will do over a year using Scrum, then I can grow my business by 40% and make it without adding one person. So just think about this. If I take my million-dollar company and I grow it to a million four, and my labor cost doesn't change by one dollar, there's $100,000 in that extra 400000 that's going to go right to my bottom line. Yeah. My point in that is the calls are immediately controllable, directly controllable. The backlog's not directly. But as we monitor the backlog, it's really important to monitor because then it tells you what action you're going to take at a lot quicker time frame than any other so it's a combination of the things that are directly controllable, but then the things that are predictive of the next like you 13-week period that you talk about. And so uh, you can use that backlog to then determine what your next steps on, just for example, that example, calls that you're going to make. That's correct. So that's a really helpful concept. And I think one that that businesses in reaction mode don't often uh, get to that point. Um, so I want to move on, you know, we can, we can get into the details. If you're interested in reading the book, we'll obviously give you, uh, give you a link to do that. But I want to talk about, uh, one of the concepts that I really, really liked, uh, was you talked about the four areas of profit and what a business owner needs to think about. Can you break those four areas of profit down real quick? And then we'll kind of dig into that a little bit more. Sure. It's lifestyle. It's having an emergency fund. It's having a fully funded retirement plan. Um, and it's having, I already said emergency fund, didn't I? Uh, and a fully funded growth program, which is marketing and sales and operations. So if you're doing all four of those things and you fill all four of those buckets, you're going to have an economically sustainable company. 
Now, the challenge comes in is most business owners will fill one or two of those buckets, and they'll sort of fill the other buckets, and then they get to be 55 years old, and they panic. For sure. Which one of those buckets do they struggle to struggle with the most? Is it the retirement bucket? No, it's an emergency fund. I would submit the reason most businesses go out of business is they run out of cash. Yeah, I looked up a stat recently. I think it's 70% of businesses or something. That's the reason, the main reason that they'll state. And and it's because running out of cash is a symptom of a lot of other problems, you know, that happened before then, right? So, you know, I mean, if, if you believe the gurus on July 22nd, 2022, we're heading into a recession. And if they're right and you don't have an emergency fund put aside, you could be in that position where your business goes down and you don't have the cash to get you through to reimagining or, you know, to get you through a tough spot that you might get through. And then you, you know, if you run out of money, you can't play the game anymore. Yeah, for sure. You talk about a six month. Are there situations where you would where you would advocate having more or less than that? Well, I would love to see it have a year, but mm-hmm. talking more people to a year is pretty hard to do. <laughs> yep, for I can understand that. What about the excess cash for business growth? Because you mentioned that. Do you have any general rule of thumbs about uh, about that cash? How much you need? Well, it's, not, it's not excess cash. It's having enough cash to fund it. Mm-hmm. In other words, when I have profit, you know, one of my friends is a guy named Mike McCallowitz who wrote a great book called Profit First. It's a really good idea. First, you put away the money for your profit, and then the rest of the money you run your business on. So a fully funded growth program means I have enough money to fund marketing, which is to create awareness. I have enough money to fund a sales staff that I need to have a certain amount of business coming in. I have enough money to hire new people who I need to deliver the business if I grow my business. And I have enough money to buy inventory and to afford accounts receivable, which are going to grow as a result of me growing my business. So that's what you need your money for, for a fully funded growth program. And that just requires you to sit down with whoever's doing your your finances, your accounting, um, to look at your cash flow statement and say, do we have enough excess cash that we can do this? Now, a bank may decide to help you with that. So you could go to a bank potentially and borrow money to grow your business, but they're not going to give you 100%. So let's say I want to grow my business by $500,000, and it's going to cost me $100,000 to do it. I'm going to need about $30,000, $40,000 of creation for myself, and the bank will likely lend me $60,000 as long as I have some assets or I'm willing to personally guarantee. And you're going to have to personally guarantee until you get a lot bigger than that. Yeah. So that's that's the you know the fully funded growth program. There's a lot of pieces to that. People think about one piece or two piece, but rarely do they think about the whole ball of wax. And you run into problems all the time as people grow. I mean, one of the way, things I've seen, I've seen very successful businesses go out of business because they've grown too fast. And they didn't realize how much cash it ate up to grow. That goes into your cash flow pretty heavily, right? Because the the longer your your 
receivables are, the longer, you know, the worse you are at collecting your cash, the worse you are at understanding how your inventory is turning, uh, means the less efficient your use of cash is going to be. And it's going to get you to that threshold a lot quicker. Uh, you mentioned the cash flow statement there, and it's probably a foreign word to, to a lot of people just because it's honestly the overlooked statement. Why do you think that statement is so important? Well, public companies care about profit. I've yet to see a private company really, really care about profit. What they care about is how much cash can they actually spend. And the only way you find that out is a cash flow statement. Cash flow statement takes your balance sheet and your profit and loss statement. It shows you what's happened over a period of time that's changed the things that either build cash or eat cash. So, for example, um, if you borrow money and you're paying your loan back, the interest shows up on your profit and loss statement, but the principal payment doesn't. Mm-hmm. So that only shows up on a cash flow statement. It also shows up on your balance sheet if you look at comparative periods. But most people don't do that. And the other issue is the way the cash flow statement is put together. It's really confusing. If your receivables go up, it becomes a negative on your cash flow statement. So that gets confusing. If your inventory goes up, it becomes a source of cash on your cash flow statement. If your inventory goes down, you would think that would be a good thing, but it needs cash for you to pay off your inventory. So it's a it's just confusing to live. You have to spend some time. It typically takes me 15 or 20 hours to teach somebody how to read their cash flow statement over a period of six months or so. Because mm. it just is confusing the way it's put together. There could be an easier way, but... If you use QuickBooks or you use any accounting system, they use traditional gap sort of accounting, you know, accounting principles to do the cash flow statement. And the truth is that financial package is not meant for people running their company. It's meant for people who want to lend you money or the government who wants to tax you. That's not really is not really relevant or very relevant to what's going to drive your business forward. That's the dashboard. The dashboard, many of those numbers in your dashboard, in fact, most of them, you won't find on your profit and loss statement. You have to get them from other places. So when you think about what alternatives, I guess that you're saying that alternative to that cash flow statement is going to be a dashboard. But what are some ways that if a dash or if a cash flow statement is going to be difficult for a business owner to understand, what are some alternatives they have to kind of get those same metrics? How would you suggest they go about it? Well, the simplest way is just look at your checkbook. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My father, it depends on your industry, obviously. But if you're in the cash business, you can literally look at your checkbook every week and see if the balance is growing or not growing. And I'll tell you if, you, if, you ha- if you're creating or eating cash. It's that simple. Uh, if you're in a business that has a lot of receivables, that's changed a lot, or your inventory levels change a lot, then you might say, okay, I'm going to track what my inventory is weekly, or I'm going to track what my receivables are weekly. And I'm going to see it's pretty easy. If my inventory goes up, well, okay, I'm bringing it in, but that means I, at some point I'm going to have to use cash to pay that down. So I better have the cash available to pay it. Uh, 
If my receivables are going up and I see my cash is going down, I know I need to get on the phone and start calling people. And I was doing this with a client yesterday. He said, my, my cash is down to 40000 I don't want my people to see it. And I said, okay, well, that's a problem. Where are you, where's your receivables? He said, well, I've got some at 100 days or 200 days. I think it was 200 days. And I said, well... You know, if you take that, if you had a CPA doing your statement, they would write that off as bad debt. They wouldn't even be there. I said, you need to be on the phone at 45 days and say, when are we getting our dough? So, I mean, he looked like he had a cash problem, but he didn't. He had a, I need to get on the phone call on the phone problem. It's like every day that that goes past day one, that you've not made contact it's a direct linear relationship of the likelihood of you collecting on that. So if you're not even contacting them until 45 days or 60 days or 90 days, the likelihood of you getting paid on that is, is significantly worse than if you had a process in place that you're, you're creating regular contact with that, uh, with that client. If you stick that, if you stick over 45 days on your, uh, on your dashboard, you say, okay, it's ten, twelve thousand dollars. I can live with that. We'll collect that. If it's a hundred thousand dollars, then you might want to hit the panic button. And whoever is responsible for collecting receivables needs to get on the phone. Yeah. So when I like to look at, I, I you know, like you said, I think you mentioned the inventory and accounts receivable are kind of the two big ones. And so I think tracking, you know, obviously it's a little bit different based off your type of business, but the biggest ones that you most commonly see are from that balance sheet are going to be cash, inventory, and receivables. And if you have a good feel on those three, you get a feel if you're looking that on, on a weekly basis, you can get a really good feel for the direction of the business and the actual cash flow of the business. Yes. So if you had one thing that you want to get across to someone that listened to this today, what do you feel like is the most important concept that a business owner could take away from this? Yeah, we haven't talked about this. The number one skill you need to learn if you want to create an economically and personally sustainable business is how to delegate. The hardest thing a business owner will ever learn, they try it. And when I say people, you need to learn to delegate, so I tried it, it didn't work, I can't do it. Well, guess what? first time you rode a bicycle, did that not work? And did you give up on that? You know, it's like every other skill in the world, you have to learn by making mistakes. You'll do it too fast, you'll do it too slow, you'll get too much, you'll be, you know, it, it, it's just a skill you knew because if you want to become operationally irrelevant, you have to be good at delegating. And delegation's hard to learn. You know, it's nobody learns, does it right the first time. Nobody. So it's you know, like everything else. What, you make a mistake and you learn from it. You make a mistake and you learn from it. It gets a little bit better. It gets a little bit worse. But over the long period of time, you start becoming relatively good at delegating. I, I, I did. I really love the content around that. Talk Talking about being a player, coach, general manager, owner, and kind of what those different roles are. And then within that, when you're delegating – uh, you talked about expect, inspect, and accept. And and those three steps, I like it too because it's catchy, right? It's easy to remember if you're trying to delegate something, you can quickly ask those questions to yourself of have I 
told them what I expect? Have I inspected the work? Okay, now it's time to let them go and it's time to let them do it. And so uh, that's that's an extremely helpful framework. Um, and, the, and the key there, the, the key step is inspect. That's where people fall down. It's really easy to say, say I want you to do this. And it's really easy to say, okay, great. I'm glad you did it. But the inspect portion is where you're going to make the corrections and the course corrections and delegating it effectively. You delegate, because I just tell you to do something doesn't mean you're going to do it right. I have to go back and inspect it. Not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but I better be checking in, which is why a retrospective is so important. Mm -hmm. How how long, and I know this is going to be different for everyone, depending on personalities, type of work, but as a general rule, how long do you suggest that people inspect the work? Well, it depends on what you're inspecting. I mean, you inspect to make sure it's done correctly. And when I start, I would recommend that you delegate small, easily done tasks that are easy to inspect, that don't have multiple steps. I mean, I'm a big fan of checklists. I love checklists. I think checklists just make life so much easier. But your checklist should never have more than 10 or 12 things on it. And if it does, then each of those 10 or 12 things should have subtasks underneath them. So that makes your life easier to do. If you look at an airplane checklist, they don't have 150 things in a checklist. They have maybe 18 or 20 things. And it makes it easy to go through. There's a wonderful book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And it's just, it's just, it just gives you so much good stuff about why you need to use checklists in your life. Yeah, I've still I have that book to read. I still have not read that book. I need to I need to do that. I've heard it recommended too many times. Um, He's a great writer. I'm a big fan of his. Well, Josh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. I think it's going to provide a lot of value to the people that listen to this. Where can people find you or connect with you? The easiest way to find me is just send me an email at jpatrick at stage2solution.com. That's the number, stage2solution.com. Or you can go to our website, www.sustainablebusiness.co. And if you want to happen to get our newsletter, which we put out every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, it's easy to get. You go to www.sustainablebusiness.co forward slash newsletter. Give me your first name and email address, and you'll be on the list. Yeah. I I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for sitting down with us today, Josh. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you.